Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. And today I welcome back to the podcast Leo Hoffman Angstelm. I had Leo on episode 14 and I asked him to come back so that we can talk about the entry into force of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This is a fantastic conversation and I'm very happy to have Leo talk to me about this. But before I bring him over, I would like to use my privilege as the podcast host and have a moment with you. I hope you are okay. I hope we went through the worst of the pandemic and coming up on the other side to have a much better 2001 with optimism, with liberal values and ideas. And I want to thank you for being on that side of the podcast, listening to our conversations, following us on digital platforms and be a recurring listener. So I hope that 2021 brings only good things and also hope to see you soon, but in person. And now with no further ado, I bring you Leo Hoffman Angstel. So I'm happy to have back on the podcast, Leo Hoffman Angstel. Leo, thank you so much for talking to me again. Ricardo, thank you for having me. Oh, you are in the center of many important things at the level of the European Union. But the reason that I have you here is that I wanted you to discuss the one of the most important developments regarding peace, regarding nuclear weapons, regarding stability, the future of the human race, and that is the entry into force of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So let's start with that, a refresher, a primer for our listeners. Tell us the importance of, of this development. Well, thanks a lot. I think it's uh, indeed an important uh, topic that tends to get uh, overlooked every now and then. Uh, now this year started with the inauguration of uh, Biden, the new president. And then two days later, uh, there was already the next development making this new year, new decade, a, a very hopeful time indeed. Uh, so on 22nd of January, the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the Nuclear Ban Treaty, entered into force. So what does this mean? Uh, it means that for the first time uh, since nuclear weapons were developed, um, they are now illegal under international law. Of course, this is not a universal treaty yet. Uh, so at the beginning, the treaty is only um, binding on those countries that have actually signed and ratified the treaty. But with the first 50 countries having ratified it, it now enters into force. And therefore, we can uh, refer to it as international law. Great. And th that's a fantastic point as a starter for the conversation, because... Normally, you would think like a treaty of this, it'll be complete once everyone signs into, but there are roadblocks naturally. So tell us a little bit, what are the main concerns regarding the, the, the full uh, effectiveness of this entry into a force? Yeah, I mean, uh, the first, the main roadblock, are of course, those countries that have nuclear weapons. Um, but that's normal. I mean, uh, most treaties are not universal uh, and it takes uh, a long time, usually much more than a decade, 
for a multilateral treaty to uh, come to anything close to universal application. Um, and also, I mean, if you go and uh, prohibit the status symbols of the most powerful countries on earth, I mean, of course, you're not going to make a lot of friends. You're not going to uh, be especially popular with the nuclear armed states. But this is all uh, to be expected. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we've been here before, right? So biological weapons, chemical weapons, all of these uh, treaties prohibiting those weapons have been adopted without all of the countries that have these weapons. Uh, and then others uh, may join later, or you may use the treaty in order to stigmatize the countries that haven't joined. So that's in the case of Syria with uh, chemical weapons. Uh, or there might be effects outside of the treaty. So uh, landmines or cluster munitions have both been banned by treaties that uh, the United States and many others haven't joined. But nevertheless, they have had to change their, their policies, their rules of engagement within NATO and so on, to adopt to these, adapt to these treaties. So uh, we have now the first step. Basically, the treaty has been uh, negotiated in 2017 by uh, 122 countries. And now, uh, a few years later, we have uh, 86 countries that have signed it so far, 52 have ratified. And so now the work continues of broadening uh, the membership of this treaty and, of course, also using this treaty in order to um, change the context in which we uh, discuss and which we think about nuclear weapons. So as to make sure that all of the decision makers, all of the policy makers involved in uh, deploying uh, nuclear weapons and strategizing around nuclear weapons and modernizing nuclear weapons, that they are all aware of the fact that the vast majority of countries and the vast majority of people regard their weapons as unacceptable and that therefore they have now been made illegal, they have been stigmatized under international law. So this is basically the, the starting point for really changing the conversation around these weapons of mass destruction. Let me try to drill a little more into that, how the sausage is made. So you gave the great example of biochemical weapons, chemical weapons, landmines and so on and so forth. When you think about you know, the work that it's done backstage, are the countries that have nuclear weapons a wink, of an, wink and a nod, kind of like, hey guys, please do this. We can't like officially say that we're in favor, you know, but maybe later on. Or is this like really from the ground up and then the later on the big boys will have to eventually uh, accept that reality? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question, good way of putting it. I mean, uh, you'd expect them to kind of accept that most countries feel threatened by nuclear weapons feel threatened by um, nuclear deterrence, which of course uh, can involve a lot of accidents and miscalculations, miscommunication. There's, there's lots of evidence for things that have already gone wrong with nuclear weapons. So you'd expect nuclear armed states in view of their commitments to disarm that they have already made in the past mm -hmm. to, uh, to really engage with such a process for prohibiting these weapons uh, and to see it as, as one of the steps in order to build progress towards disarmament. But in actual fact, the absolute opposite has happened. So um, all the nuclear armed states have really uh, fought tooth and nail against this treaty and have uh, tried with different tactics to dissuade uh, the majority of countries on, on the world to uh, adopt this treaty. And then now we see all of the quite dirty tactics, I have to say, uh, in order to dissuade countries from signing and ratifying the treaties. Uh, we've seen the Trump administration calling on all uh, countries that have joined the treaty to unratify it. Mm -hmm. And there's also uh, quite post-colonial elements to this. So, for example, the French government uh, is often um, uh, putting also economic pressure on African countries to uh, not sign this treaty. 
And also within the European Union, we see a lot of pressure exerted uh, on, on countries such as uh, Cyprus um, to, to not join this treaty. Also with Malta, but they went ahead and did it anyways. And so, yeah, let's maybe take a look at the countries in the EU that uh, have already joined this treaty. So within the European Union, uh, Austria, Ireland and Malta have all signed and ratified the treaty. Um, and that already tells us that most EU countries are not part of this process, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's, I think, something that we should dwell on a little bit. Because uh, if you ask people, of course, everyone is sort of against nuclear weapons, right? And we do a lot of surveys as well in all of the European countries. And depending on the country and the survey, uh, usually it's 60 to 90% of people who uh, want their country to join any treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons and who certainly want a world without nuclear weapons. And indeed, this has been government policy, right? So all European countries, even, even France, even the UK, even the nuclear armed ones, uh, usually agree um, that they are working towards nuclear disarmament and always state that the goal is the elimination of nuclear weapons uh, from the entire planet and so on and so forth. And so the consensus is so overarching, it's so overwhelming, that basically we uh, don't even notice uh, that actually our governments are not part of those pushing for nuclear disarmament, but rather are standing in the way of progress and uh, have been boycotting um, the, the prohibition of nuclear weapons and are really trying to keep other countries from joining this treaty. So uh, in that sense, um, for us who were in the field of nuclear disarmament, it was very clear that all NATO countries who base their security on uh, nuclear deterrence are, of course, not interested in nuclear disarmament, but are very much interested in uh, keeping the status quo and keeping their security based on uh, on the concept of nuclear deterrence. But uh, this was not so clear to parliamentarians, to journalists, and to the general public in NATO countries. And therefore, this treaty is really helpful in, uh, first of all, giving an alternative. So you don't have to stick with the status quo. You don't have to uh, keep on trying the failed um, strategies of the last decades, but rather there is now an alternative with which you can build actual pressure. Uh, but also it shows you that actually, hang on, our political leaders, our um, own countries, our political parties are not willing to go that step and are not willing to uh, prohibit nuclear weapons. And in fact, are busy making up arguments why prohibiting nuclear weapons may be a bad thing. And in a minute, I'll be asking what people can do. So civil societies inside those countries, inside NATO, you know, there are movements against atomic energy, for example. Does it change the landscape of the, you know, the nuclear chess pieces? Or, you know, these countries are just thinking the same way that they were thinking during the 70s. I think that's a good point here. Um, so basically, it's all about past dependency, right? We have inherited um, security architecture from the Cold War. Uh, where you had the block confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, mm -hmm. And then the, the Berlin Wall came down, the Cold War ended, and people were like, okay, nuclear weapons, uh, the, this terrifying um, situation where where the, the end of the world could come at any moment, this has finally ended, and we can move on with our lives now. 
Um, and and this is what we did. But the nuclear weapons were never really removed. Um, we came down incredible numbers from the 1970s. So uh, we have now 15, well, 14,000 nuclear weapons in, uh, across the planet. Um, and we used to be at 70,000, right? So the numbers came down uh, quite a bit. But at the same time, I mean, 14,000 is still enough to blow up the planet many times. Um, so we are very far away from acceptable numbers. Um, but the problem is that, uh, of course, you kind of stop focusing on this topic. Um, and therefore, the, the administrative machinery, the military and so on, they just keep on maintaining the, the same policies and they don't even update uh, the arguments in favor of that, right? So what we notice now is that when you challenge this, the status quo of the weapons, um, the arguments that are used are indeed the same ones from the 1980s. Uh, they have not updated to reflect the new evidence on whether nuclear deterrence even works in the first place. They have not reacted to the critique that any use of nuclear weapons would be a humanitarian disaster. They do not uh, acknowledge uh, new evidence about the risk of accidents, about the many instances of uh, malfunctioning um, delivery of vehicles, malfunctioning software, malfunctioning um, uh, command and control posts. Uh, so they don't really engage with all of these substantive arguments from uh, the majority of countries that do not have nuclear weapons. And they don't even acknowledge that you can have security without nuclear weapons, which is a bit weird given that the absolute majority of countries doesn't have nuclear weapons. And yet nobody blackmails them with nuclear weapons. Nobody um, uh, <laughs> forces them to, I don't know, accept Give us all your uh, money. Exactly, stuff like that. This has never happened. And if a country tried something like that, I mean, it would be completely a uh, non-credible threat, right? I mean, you're not going to wipe out millions of citizens of another country uh, in order to, I don't know, pressure them into submission or win somebody else's favor. I mean, this is just not a very popular or credible strategy. And therefore, um, I have to say it's, it's, a, it's a bit unedifying, it's a bit frustrating to see how, based on completely illogical arguments, uh, our own NATO countries are uh, still very much married to this uh, to this ideology of nuclear deterrence. Uh, but at the same time, now that we have a treaty that prohibits nuclear weapons, um, of course, these countries come under much more pressure to justify their current reliance on uh, nuclear deterrence. And they are now in the process of um, re-evaluating their old arguments. Yeah? Um, and I think this makes a lot of sense. This is really an important part of the process, given that, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, in the status quo, we all think that we are working towards nuclear disarmament. But in fact, NATO countries are, of course, relying on nuclear weapons and therefore are trying to play for time and are trying to um, preserve the status quo. Um, but sticking to the current strategy, yeah? sticking to the step-by-step the -step process, this is how it's called, within the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, would, in principle, be a good idea, given that each and every one of these steps that are advocated uh, by everyone uh, would bring us closer to a nuclear weapon-free world. However, these steps have been the same since the 1990s. 
and uh, they show absolutely no probability of actually being implemented in practice. And therefore, those countries that are still sticking to the old way of going about nuclear disarmament, so to sit together with the nuclear armed states and, and always uh, go over the same uh, steps as since the 1990s, uh, those who advocate for this old approach um, are really calling into question their own commitment to nuclear disarmament. And therefore, it's really important to challenge them uh, to join this new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which really makes it much more credible, the entire strategy of uh, getting to a nuclear weapon-free world. And if they are not willing to do this step, yeah, which they call symbolic, if they are not willing to do the symbolic step of declaring nuclear weapons illegal based on their unacceptable humanitarian consequences, uh, then, of course, um, they show that they have a lack of commitment to nuclear disarmament. And this, and this is really, I mean, let's not underestimate what this means, right? The first step to improving your behavior is to recognize that our governments are um, part of the problem, right? And only once we recognize our own, even center-left even parties, that even... Uh, our own governments are um, still sticking very much to um, nuclear weapons, to weapons of mass destruction. Only then can we uh, call into question these arguments and um, reevaluate our own position. And this is what's happening, right? I mean, so now political parties, uh, countries, uh, individual policymakers, um, and so on, are really um, re-engaging with the topic of nuclear disarmament saying, uh, um, oh, wow, this, this is interesting. There's a new treaty. 75 years after the nuclear age has begun, there's finally a United Nations Prohibition Treaty. Uh, let's see what the proponents of this say. No? Let's see what the arguments are based on which uh, all of these countries can come together and, uh, and declare nuclear weapons illegal. And, and this is the debate that we need. We really need them to engage with the substantive evidence, with the scientific argument against nuclear weapons. Um, and weigh the cost and the benefits of nuclear deterrence uh, in, a, in a fair way. And uh, this is an argument that we uh, can only win, frankly, and therefore it's, it's very useful to have all these political parties, all of these opinion leaders engage um, with this treaty and ask themselves whether the old arguments from the 1980s can really still cut it. I just think it's interesting listening to you how a, a, a topic like environment, there's an entire generation of new politicians and people who are actually in power, prime ministers, presidents of the republics, like for example in France, that can change the status quo, you know, from industry to government to, you know, the public perception, but then when it gets to the nuclear, and maybe it has to do with the military, um, with the military power, military might, then that is not uh, the new logical steps. So I think it's interesting. And I think as you were saying, it, it, those conversations need to be open and they need to be faced uh, head on. Yeah, and it's a bit bizarre how we always um are drumming in favor of multilateral approaches when it comes to the environment, when it comes to trade. We are always in favor of multilateralism, human rights, and so on. But when it comes to security, which arguably is really important, I mean, human security, survival of the of um, survival both of nation states, but also of, of humanity as such, right? Security seems like an important topic. And yet here, not only are we boycotting the multilateral approach, 
but um, we are also very much sticking to our right to have weapons of mass destruction and to basically hold the rest of the world hostage. Because nuclear weapons, if you think about it, is something that is relevant for every country on Earth and for all people, given that obviously the, the consequences of nuclear weapons are very much cross-border and could be catastrophic, even to even wiping out uh, half or all of the human race. So, so, I mean, these are topics that you can't just leave to the big guys. You can't leave it. And, and we've tried, right? I mean, we've tried the approach of leaving it to the nuclear armed states to sort out among themselves. Clearly, they haven't been wanting to do this. They're playing for time. And so the ne logical next step is really to uh, stigmatize the nuclear weapons and make them not a status symbol, symbol, but something to be ashamed of and to also ban banks from uh, financing uh, any companies that are involved in this. So these are all of the things that are now happening um, in an indirect way, not to uh, make it more difficult to maintain nuclear weapons and uh, make it more difficult to justify the spending for them and so on and so forth. Yes, and, it, and it's not the topic of our conversation today, but we are racing against time also on other more technological aspects. I actually had um, Dr. Frank Sauer, which is an expert on that, and they are mostly just letting computers run scenarios if we you know, have a submarine that has nuclear capability, but there's like this drone, underwater drone, and shoots first. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, are you guys kidding? Well, not, of course, not Dr. Frank Sauer. He was just expressing that kind of capability. But as you were saying, just, just one mistake, one, you know, faulty wire, and we can have, you know, the bombs flying all over. So most necessary work yeah. to be done. So no, glad, uh, glad to hear that uh, you spoke also to, to Dr. Frank Sauer, because uh, I know that he has, um, he's very close to the um, to the research on this, and he's also extremely uh, skeptical of, of this whole theology of uh, nuclear deterrence. Uh, but indeed, as you uh, as you mentioned, there's, there's other topics that interlink with this. So all the AI and all of the um, uh, cyber war capabilities and so on. Uh, you'd hope that, of course, nuclear weapons, which are technologies from the 60s, from the 70s, are very much offline, right? But uh, nevertheless, mm. there are a lot of uh, vulnerabilities um, of the IT systems uh, and of these uh, incredibly old computer systems that run nuclear weapons. Uh, <laughs> you know, with floppy disks. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> You're informed. Yeah. So, so there's incredibly old technology involved. And of course, uh, mistakes happen all the time. I mean, uh, let's not kid ourselves. These are human systems. They are run by demotivated humans who expect that they will never be asked to push that button, right? Uh, and so, of course, they, they are going about their day um, uh, the way you'd expect. They are not the, the biggest careers are not to be had in the nuclear weapons part of the military. So uh, basically, uh, that, that has its consequences, right? We even have uh, leaked studies about um, drug abuse and spousal abuse and mm. so on. Be much higher uh, among the military men who are tasked with nuclear weapons if you compare it to other branches of the military and so on. So, so this is a, a problem. But uh, at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, I think uh, we have to be much more political about this topic and not focus so much on the on the technical details of the military of the nuclear weapons and so on but rather focus on the political debate that we have around it, right? Because uh, if you look at the arguments that are coming from NATO countries, 
So also from countries like Germany, like Italy, like Portugal. Um, the arguments that we hear is that apparently prohibiting nuclear weapons is incompatible with uh, the membership in NATO. And that's, of course, an incredibly lazy argument because they're just trying to make it easier to uh, justify domestically why they don't want to prohibit nuclear weapons by claiming that something else, uh, something that is important to them, like uh, alliance, alliance uh, solidarity, is um, making this impossible. But if you look at the evidence, and lots of people have, I mean, let's just go through it one by one. No? First, uh, 130 countries have negotiated this treaty. Yeah? These 130 countries very much wanted NATO states not only to be in the room, but also to participate in the treaty negotiations and to join this treaty. So they have literally drafted the treaty in such a way that it would be compatible with NATO, first of all. Second, uh, the NATO treaty is silent on the topic of nuclear weapons, and NATO has only declared itself a nuclear alliance with the 2010 strategic concept, which is a political document and which is changed regularly. So, of course, you can also change that, and you can uh, very much give an opt-out on nuclear deterrence to any NATO country that wants it. In fact, there is also lots of precedent for nuclear weapon-related opt-outs for NATO countries. So, for example, Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Spain, all don't allow nuclear weapons to uh, visit their countries in uh, peacetime. And uh, also you can add footnotes in the NATO declaration saying that country X and Y doesn't agree with the with the nuclear weapon-related aspect and so on. So these things have been done already. But of course, uh, lots of other think tanks and reputable experts have looked at this and have come to the conclusion that obviously, I mean, prohibiting nuclear weapons is not incompatible with uh, NATO membership because at the end of the day, I mean, frankly, you don't need nuclear weapons if you are part of the most powerful military alliance in the world. And also it would be a shitty PR strategy from the perspective of NATO to uh, tie itself so much to weapons of mass destruction and claim that they are two sides of the same coin. No? Those are great points. Uh, and as we're getting close to the end of our podcast for today, and this is a conversation to empower people to get into action, I'm going to ask you a question that has two parts. One is, what can people do in countries that are part of NATO? So, because for what you explained, the resistance will be, unfortunately, greater. And then maybe go a little bit into other countries that they don't have that, but they need, you know, an active uh, society trying to have countries rectify the treaty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, in countries without nuclear weapons, for them, of course, it's easy to join this treaty because they don't have to change any of their behavior. So this is the countries for them, whom it's easiest to join the prohibition treaty and they are already doing so. It takes some time. Uh, it's a bit of a logistical challenge. We have campaigners there to try and uh, make it a priority. But so over the years, um, the membership of this treaty will grow a lot. Uh, in NATO countries, completely right, it's a bit more difficult. But ex you know, you also have to keep in mind NATO are 30 democracies, right? So good luck keeping 30 democracies from joining uh, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons when 80, 90% of the population want them to do it, right? Uh, so for them, it's an impossible race uh, to win. So uh, we expect within the next five to 10 years, at least a handful, if not significantly more NATO countries to join this treaty. And that, of course, will set off a whole series of events whereby 
within NATO, you just have to reevaluate the value of nuclear weapons, de-emphasize nuclear weapons and the strategic uh, doctrines and so on. So it's going to be very useful. And what can we do to make that happen? So most uh, most politicians, as much as most political parties, just don't think very much about nuclear weapons, right? So the first thing is just to bring it up. What's your position on the UN Treaty of Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons? Um, they may never have heard of it. They may then do some research and uh, decide for themselves whether they want to um, support this or not. Then you can, of course, bring it up to the level of the party and have a political debate about uh, whether one should um, adopt the position that your political party wants to join this treaty. And then the next level, of course, is to get it into a government platform. And we have reached a step at uh, various, uh, various uh, countries. Uh, in Spain, for example, the prime minister um, was uh, convinced uh, to include it in the government platform. They haven't done it yet, but it's there. Of course, there's always a lot of pushback, especially from NATO allies. But once we have a handful of countries that want to take the step together, um, it would also make it a lot easier for them by reducing the political cost and by explaining to their NATO allies that uh, this is not in order to reduce uh, alliance solidarity, but merely to take themselves out of the nuclear deterrence practice. Right? Um, so that's in NATO countries. So my, I'd say you can always write to your politician, you can uh, petition your political parties. Uh, in fact, ICANN um, has a pledge, the ICANN pledge, that uh, parliamentarians can um, sign whereby they commit themselves to work towards signature and ratification of this treaty by their country. And this has been an incredible success. So in Germany, for example, we have over 600 parliamentarians who have signed this pledge. And over 180 of those 600 are actually in the national or federal parliament. So uh, this is a sizable part of the national parliament. There's also a group of friends of the treaty uh, inside the German parliament where they uh, speak about this treaty regularly. So these are the kinds of things that parliamentarians, politicians can do to put the treaty on the agenda and to make sure that everybody is forced to take a position on this and to reevaluate their arguments. And then once NATO states have joined, once we have maybe a handful, maybe a few more, then of course it's going to start to really have knock-on effects also on the nuclear armed states. We then have to, on a much more credible level, engage with the arguments in favor of the treaty uh, and ask themselves whether nuclear deterrence is really um, such a good strategy as they thought, given that even NATO countries are now starting to um, voluntarily uh, do away with, with the policy of nuclear deterrence. Um, and then maybe since I already hear the question, hey, but isn't it bad for us to not have nuclear weapons anymore? Um, I just invite really to be a bit more empathetic, to have more empathy towards countries that never had nuclear weapons. Uh, and not just countries like Austria and Ireland uh, or Sweden or Finland that are in the middle of the EU. Uh, but also around the world, we have, I mean, most countries have never had nuclear weapons or even considered them. And it's never posed a security problem for them. So um, the idea that you need weapons of mass destruction at all to keep yourself secure is a really dangerous, really toxic um, concept that can only uh, lead to doom, given that already now we have nine nuclear armed states, and the more states adopt this posture for themselves, um, the more complicated their relationship will become, and the more likely it will be that somebody somewhere makes a mistake, 
And uh, just to finish on a really encouraging positive note, uh, modern climate uh, models have predicted that if India and Pakistan each use uh, between 50 and 100 of their nuclear weapons, then these 50 to 150 nuclear weapons would be enough to send so much smoke into the atmosphere at such a high level where it cannot be rained out that you'd have a nuclear winter for 10 years and between one and two billion people would starve to death. So the problem wouldn't be so much the 50, 70 million people who would die of the initial nuclear weapons. The problem would be on the other side of the planet, people in Africa, people in Southeast Asia uh, that have nothing to do with the uh, initial conflict, but that suddenly can't afford food anymore and you have one to two billion people starving. So this also drives home the, the responsibility that we have to uh, really make sure that these risks are eliminated, given this is obviously a public problem of the first order alongside climate change. Absolutely. And uh, Leo just mentioned ICANN just a minute ago. That is the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. I'm going to put all the links on the description of the podcast. Leo, tell us where people can follow your genius. Uh, well, of course, ICANN is, uh, is a bit uh, everywhere on, on social media under at nuclear ban. I myself am under at Leo underscore Axt. And uh, we keep on working, of course, to, to get uh, not just NATO states, but all nuclear armed states around the world to to join this treaty. Um, maybe I should say a word about ICANN's role as well. So, of course, treaties have to be negotiated by countries, but countries also need a lot of encouragement. And ICANN really was honored with the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 as a recognition of our role in um, getting country together around the table and giving them empowering them to really pursue their own security interests and make it clear where they stand on nuclear weapons, which is uh, the unconditional global prohibition treaty. Um, and even in democratic countries, you get people like Trump every now and then. So if you compare that to countries like Pakistan, where you have lots of military coups, or countries like Russia, China, I mean, at the end of the day, you just have to acknowledge that Humans are not responsible enough to deal with such a massive responsibility as our nuclear weapons. Our political systems are simply not stable enough. We've had nuclear weapons for 75 years. That's such a short time frame. Um, our political systems simply cannot manage the awesome responsibility of dealing with such weapons of mass destruction. And therefore, the safest course of action is really to get rid of them as quickly as possible. And if we can't get rid of them altogether in the short time, then, of course, to just reduce their numbers as much as possible, reduce their role in nuclear doctrines as much as possible, reduce the amount of money that is wasted on these unacceptable weapons uh, as, as far as possible. Well, it's a great, great privilege to have you on the podcast. It's awesome to talk to you. You do. Thank you so much. Now you do a fabulous work and I will keep asking you to come back because I'm sure there will be more conversations have for the benefit of our audience. So thanks again, Leo. Thank you, Ricardo. Speak to you soon. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. 
And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this month of March. On the 26th of March, based in Belgium but online, we have ELF Book Event, EU Diplomacy Fit for the Future. In a time of upheaval and reconfiguration of global governance and international relations, we aim to find out how to carry out EU foreign policy, how these objectives could be based on common values and the promotion of individual collective freedom and human rights, both from a structural point of view and as strategic view of diplomacy. The seminar will explore how the European Union External Action Service works, what are their priorities and main structural and strategic challenges. To know more about this event, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>